Dr. Kristen Oja here, entrepreneur and functional medicine expert. Welcome to Little By Podcast, where our goal is to empower you to achieve optimal health, one step and one episode at a time. Taking a functional medicine approach will cover a variety of health and wellness topics, from how to optimize performance to how to balance your hormones and everything in between. This podcast is for educational purposes only, so please be sure to consult your healthcare provider before incorporating any changes into your daily routine. Now grab your headphones and let's go for a walk as we take steps towards becoming your best self. This is one of my favorite episodes with Todd, the founder of Dry Farm Wines. I have become very passionate about Dry Farm Wines because it's natural wine that doesn't give you a headache or make you feel flush. I've actually experimented this with my mom, and she's not been able to drink red wine since my little sister was born which was now almost 30 years ago. And Dry Farm Wines was the first wine she was able to drink without getting a headache. So it's tested and approved, but it's very, very low in sugar. It's lower in alcohol, so under 12.5% per bottle. It's free of over 70 plus FDA approved additives that winemakers can put in their wine without having to disclose on food labels. And the best part is they do the work for you. They go and meet these natural farmers. They make sure that they are making the wine to their standards and they estimate less than 0.01% of wine makes their strict criteria that can be a part of the dry farm wine subscription. And so I know you guys are going to love this episode and if you want to try Try a bottle for a penny. Go to dryfarmwines.com slash Dr. Kristen Oja. That's D-R-K-R-I-S-T-I-N-O-J-A. I know you guys are going to fall in love with it. Um, again, it's still alcohol, so I recommend keeping it to the weekends only. But it's so nice to be able to drink something that doesn't make you feel bad after. So let's talk about Todd because he is the guy that we will be interviewing today. And he is a serial entrepreneur and creator since the age of 17. He has been in the wine business for over 15 years, and he's really dedicated to educating and helping people make better choices about food, nutrition, and how they think about consuming alcohol. He's the founder of Dry Farm Wines. He's a writer, speaker, and a leader in the organic natural wine movement. He has widely educated communities on conscious conception. Todd is deeply passionate about bringing people together to share love and laughter through natural wine. He is a self-described biohacker who practices daily meditation, Wim Hof breathing, cold thermogenesis, a keto diet, a daily 22-hour intermittent fast. He's also a frequent speaker on topics including ketogenic lifestyles, meditation, and the Dry Farm Wines unique company culture, which we will get into in this episode. His entire team gathers each morning for a meditation and gratitude practice, and their company is really built on a foundation of honesty and peace. Dry Farm Wines has seen remarkable growth in the last three years, making it one of the fastest growing private companies in the U.S. without any debt or investors. That's 
super impressive. It's endorsed by many leaders in the health uh, kind of space, including Mark Sison, Dave Asprey, Ben Greenfield, Rob Wolf, Wellness Mama, and more. So make sure to listen to this episode uh, as we talk about dry farm wines. And again, I know you are going to want to try it yourself. So go to dryfarmwines.com slash Dr. Kristen Oja for your first bottle for a penny. Uh, I know you won't regret it. So let's tune in. Todd, I am so excited to have you on the Little Buy podcast because as we were just talking about, Dry Farm Wines has quickly become my favorite wine service. So uh, welcome to the show. Thanks. Happy to be here. Lots to talk about. Yes. And I wanted to first kind of hear a little bit about your background and what got you into wine and this whole uh, kind of clean wine industry. Well, I, you know, I've been a, white, a lifelong wine aficionado. I've been drinking wine since I was nine years old. And um, so I had a lifelong interest in wine and really got more serious about it in my 20s and 30s. But then what led me to drinking natural wines, and we'll talk about the clean wine movement in a moment, because I don't really know what clean wine means, but I do know what natural wines are. And we can talk about what there's a lot of marketing spin sort of out there now since our success and our bringing pure natural wines to market. There's been sort of some copycats, if you will, that have termed this phrase clean wine. And it's, it's really a marketing phrase that doesn't mean much, but we can talk about that in a moment. So I, you know, about six years ago as a biohacker, I've been biohacking for the last three decades, but I started experimenting about six years ago with a therapeutic ketogenic diet. Today, I'm on a modified keto diet, but at the time, I was therapeutically ketogenic for a couple of years. And when when I dialed in my nutrition to ketosis, uh, it could have been just a cofactor. And it is a common side effect of people who go on ketosis or do ex- a lot of extended fasting that they have a more difficult relationship with alcohol. So I didn't know what it was, but here's what I did know. Drinking conventional wines were making me feel poorly and brain fog and hangovers. And it just, I just didn't, I was not enjoying drinking wine anymore. And I thought it was actually, I believed at the time it was because of higher alcohol because alcohol has been creeping up and, and, and wines globally, but particularly in the United States for the last 30 years. So I thought it was really, um, I thought it was just really, I needed to drink less alcohol. So that's before I knew what was really going on in wines, commercial wines, and what we call the dirty, dark secrets of the wine business, which I learned after that. And that's when I discovered natural wines in addition to lower alcohol wines. So um, I wanted to reduce my alcohol intake. So I started drinking lower alcohol wines, which is all we sell today. And then also natural wines and natural wine is a confusing term to consumers because I say, Oh, I drink natural wines. I sell natural wines. And they're like, well, what are all wines natural? And they're not. And here's the problem with what's going on in commercial wines. So the same thing that happened in our food supply in essence, happened in our wine supply. So there's been massive corporate consolidation over the last 30 years. And what's happened there, the same thing in our food supply, what's happened is that 
a small number of companies now today basically make most of the wine that is consumed. So 52% of all U.S. wines are made by just three giant companies. And 70% of U.S. wines are made by the top 30 wine companies. So when you go into the grocery store or into a bottle shop and you see these hundreds or thousands of bottles on these long grocery shelves, most of those wines are made by just a handful of companies. Now, they don't want you to know that. And so these multi-billion dollar, very slick marketing organizations hide behind thousands of brands and labels to confuse you. And so when they put this nice label with a farmhouse on the front of the label to make you believe that you're drinking from this cute farm, when in fact you're drinking from massive wine factories located in central California. So that's really kind of, that's what's happened in the commercial wine industry. And then natural wines came along uh, about six or eight years ago. Natural wines are really just a return to the way wines were made a hundred years ago. And it's a very specific winemaking protocol uh, that separates natural wines from their conventional counterparts. So that's, but I, initially I got in the business because I was trying to respond to a personal need. I didn't start it as a business. I actually, it became a business later. Initially, I was just trying to find a healthier way for me to drink and to have healthier, more uh, positive outcomes from drinking was kind of how it started. It became a business after that. And I'm really uh, interested, even going back to the beginning, you said you started drinking wine at nine years old. Are are you from the United States or where were you born? I was born in uh, Charleston, South Carolina. So it was just, it was a holiday thing that, um, you know, very small amounts. It was just basically, uh, it was basically during the holidays that my family would share, you know, very small amount of wine with 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 us yeah well so I it know. wasn't like i wasn't drinking daily <laughs> yeah <laughs> not not chugging out of the bottle um but i do know a lot of people that are european like they drink that's a very normal thing like it's it's sure. not like you have to wait till you're 21 it's just part of like you have a little bit of water with dinner you have a little bit of wine and uh i really like that culture every time i've gone to europe and experienced that culture it's so different than what we have in the united states but i think i i see what you're saying with the clean wine versus the natural wine and i always use the word clean because it's really tricky. It's kind of, I compare the wine industry to the beauty industry. You don't have to put anything on a label when you're looking at a bottle of wine. Sure. There's not an ingredient list. So There's not. There's a reason for that. And the reason is that the wine industry spend millions of dollars in lobby money in Washington, D.C. to keep contents labeling off of wine bottles because they don't want you to know what's in it. And isn't there like uh, There's also 70? no nutritional. Well, there's 76. So here's the problem. Here's why they don't want a contents label on it. There's 76 additives approved by the FDA for the use in winemaking. In the EU, there are 56. So just because the wine is European, and we don't sell domestic wine. I don't drink domestic wine. I only, only uh, drink and sell, um, only drink and sell uh, international wines. But uh, the only reason for that is because there are no domestic wines in the United States that meet our standards of purity. And so, but. There are 76 additives approved by the FDA for the use in winemaking. Many of them are natural, and many of them are not. And so the problem is with the lack of transparency and labeling, you don't know what's in the wine you're drinking. Maybe it's safe, maybe it's not. The, the issue is a transparency issue. So we would love to see contents labeling 
and nutritional information on all wine bottles. The other problem with wine is it oftentimes contains sugar. And I'm, I, I live more or less a sugar-free lifestyle. And I don't want to drink sugar when I drink wine. I don't want to consume sugar in anything I don't know about. So, I mean, if there's anything that I consume that comes in a package, I look to see what's in it, right? That's just the nature of how I consume things. Unfortunately, for wine, I don't have that option. I know, and it's really scary, and it's so concentrated, and you have you really have no idea what you're drinking. I did not realize, though, that the EU still had 50-something additives that they can put in their wine. They do, but they don't. What What's not approved in the EU are some of the more toxic, you know, some of the more toxic um, uh, chemicals in, 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 in the winemaking process, but also industrial farming is much worse than the United States. So, you know, glyphosate is the glyphosate is the number one, um, applied herbicide in us vineyards. And if you go to the wine country anywhere in the United States, but certainly where I live in California, when you travel through and you look at vineyards, you can see which vineyards have been treated with glyphosate or Roundup. You can see it because the way because the soil beneath the vine is very moon-like. It's super hard. There's nothing growing on it. It's uh, it's a very bizarre uh, kind of a look. It almost looks like uh, lava. It's so hard, and there's nothing growing in it, and because it, it's been sprayed, it's been sprayed year after year after year. And there's just nothing alive. But and you go to a natural wine to to a natural wine farm. You go to a natural vineyard. You will see a vineyard teeming with life, right? So there's wildflowers and grasses and weeds, if you will, everywhere. Like you, when you walk through a natural vineyard, everything is alive. the The natural farmer wants life in the vineyard, right? They want to attract insects. They want to attract uh, life to the vineyard. So oftentimes when you walk through uh, a natural vineyard, you won't see this in California, but when you walk through a natural vineyard in Europe, sometimes the vegetation will be waist high, right? I mean, it just looks like a jungle. Mm. And the vines are, but this is the way nature is intended to work. Right. Right. So I don't know if you've seen the documentary, The Little Bi- the Biggest Little Farm. I have not. Uh but it's it's a story of a California farm. Uh, the documentary was made an extraordinary film. Um, it got critical acclaim and was uh, award winning a year or two, a couple of years ago. And but it documents the conversion of a California farm. It was not not a vineyard, but a California farm from conventional farming practices back to biodiverse and organic practices. And see, nature is all interconnected. And so it's, we, when we interrupted, when we interrupted nature in the 1920s in farming, right, when we brought chemical farming to, um, to the United States in the 19, early 1920s, uh, we started to change nature's relationship with itself, right? And so that's when we had to start using chemicals to start balancing nature out. Nature will balance itself out, right? right. It's it's uh, it's quite it's you know it had a couple billion years to figure this out from 
from the time the earth first showed up. So, I mean, nature is connected. And, and, and so, you know, one plant, I mean, one, one animal eats the other and so on and so forth to maintain a, a perfected balanced system. So when you go to a biodiverse farm, or in my case, a vineyard, you'll see orchards and bees and, and wildflowers and uh, livestock and, and trees. You know, all of these things are connected. When you go to, you know, a, 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 a monochromatic sort of agriculture, monoagriculture, like what started in the 1920s, 30s, and 40s, when we went from uh, from polyagriculture to these, which were biodiverse farms where a num- where livestock was raised and all kinds of um, biodiversity existed into uh, into monoagriculture where we're raising a single crop. Use wheat as an example, or you can use grapes as an example. This is when we got nature out of balance and had to start using more and more man-made processes and chemicals in order to balance the farming environment and make it where the plants could survive because it was no longer no longer supported by nature's system. Well, and that was one of the things you mentioned, glyphosates, and I work in a functional medicine practice, and so I did my total toxic burden test through urine and found my glyphosates were really high, and I was like, I have no idea where I'm getting this. I buy organic. I stay away from grains. Where am I getting these glyphosates? And I started thinking it's probably from wine, even though I try to choose better quality wine. I, there's no way to know from labels. And that's where I really started to investigate where I can find some good natural wine. And I use the word clean just because it, you guys ensured that there's not all these additives added into the wine. But that's when I found dry farm wines. And it's so nice because you guys do the work for me. So I know the wine that now I'm drinking doesn't have glyphosates in it. So I've actually switched all my wine over to dry farm wines. And then I'm going to repeat my test and I, I know that you like to sauna as well, but I sauna to help with detoxification. I'm going to repeat it and see if my glyphosates have gone down with switching to uh, more natural wine. So that was one of my big motivations is the glyphosates. I mean, it's scary. There is, is good PubMed articles that glyphosates are uh, cancer-causing agents, and it's concentrated in this wine that we don't have to – they don't have to put it on a label, and that's a very – I feel like that's why I really wanted to have you on this podcast to get the knowledge out there to everybody that we need to go to the experts that are doing the work for us. So I know obviously our, our listeners can do dry farm wines, which I highly suggest because you guys do do this work for us. But is there anything on a label that we can look for to understand like if if a wine is natural? Is there anything that you can look for or any clues on a wine uh, label? No, no, not really. The problem is there's no international or national there's no accepted certification for natural wines now france just announced last year that next year they will be the first country to certify a natural wine and that's a huge step forward and 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 a terrific development dry farm wines my company does have a certification process that's over and above just being natural so, and natural is again a very consuming, a very confusing term because, you know, the word natural or sustainable, these were words that have been used by the food industry to sidestep organic certification. So they'll say, oh, naturally farmed. And in the food world, it doesn't mean anything. 
right? And so this whole thing is just very confusing. And so you'll see, again, sustainably sustainably farm. Well, that doesn't mean anything. There's no, uh, there's no official definition for sustainable farming. We do know what certified organic farming means. Sustainable. So again, this term natural wine can be very confusing because of the way it's been used to mislead consumers in, um, in, 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 in food products, our food packaging. So I, but very rarely are wines that are natural or they labeled natural wine. It, it's just super, super rare. It, it's, it's just the nature of the industry. Now, here, here's what does exist. Of course, Dry Farm Wines has its certification, as I mentioned, but also the natural wine category and na- the definition of natural wine is widely accepted within the wine industry. And people in the natural wine business and others in the wine industry know what natural wine means. And there's no dispute as to what that is because uh, it's very simple. So natural wine has basically three pillars. One, natural wine is always organic or biodynamically grown. Biodynamic farming is a prescriptive form, an advanced prescriptive form of organic farming. Number two, it is always, natural wines are always fermented with wild native yeast that is indigenous to the vineyard where the grape is grown. Now, what does that mean? That sounds like a mouthful. Here's what it means. On every grape, on the earth, at the time of harvest, every grape has yeast on the skin of the grape. It's a white, waxy-looking film. Uh, it's collected naturally through the air. It's indigenous to where the vineyard is. So it's a wild native yeast. It's collected on every grape berry in the world. However, conventional wine, commercial wines, what happens is that they introduce, after they press the juice into the tank, they introduce sulfur dioxide to kill the wild native yeast so they can inoculate the wine with a genetically modified lab-cultured yeast. Now, why do they do that? That sounds pretty nasty. Well, they do it because the, the wild native yeast that are already present on the grape are very temperamental. They're difficult to work with. They require a lot of coddling, a lot of effort and watching and sort of observation. Um, and you can't make wine in very large volumes with these delicate, sort of fragile native yeast. So best for the commercial winemaker is to get rid of them because you don't want the lab culture yeast competing with the native yeast. So they just kill the native yeast and then inoculate it with this GMO um, yeast. And the reason they do this is because this lab culture yeast is much easier to work with. You can make wine in very large volumes with it. It will withstand a higher alcohol environment, and you can also buy buy it in different flavor profiles. So if you want the wine to taste like it's from Italy or the Mediterranean, they have a yeast for that, for these different flavor profiles. So, and then number three, in addition to, to this yeast issue, number three is that natural wines are additive free, so they don't contain any of these toxic additives that are approved by the government for the use in winemaking. So people say, well, why would you have these toxic additives? Well, when you make wine, particularly wine in large volumes, you must have the use of these chemicals and additives to ensure that the wine 
doesn't face kind of routine bacterial risk that could spoil the wine. And so there are additives and chemicals that ensure against the spoilage from foreign bacteria that can often develop in wine if you're not in a super, super sterile wine um, making facility. So when these bacteria get in a cellar, then it's, uh, it's very difficult to get them out. Bretomyces is the most common one. And so once Bretomyces gets into a cellar, it will stay on the walls. It will be, it'll just hide itself all over the place. It's very easy for these bacterial infections to get in wine. And then when the wine gets these faulted bacteria in it, then the taste of the wine is off putting. And so there are chemicals that are used to ensure that Bretomyces is just the most common one. There are, are there are half a dozen very sort of nasty faults in wine that can make wine undesirable, uh, primarily from bacterial and from bacterial uh, exposures. And so it's a risk in winemaking that your wine would adapt to one of these bacteria, and then the wine would be less desirable to drink. So that's what the chemicals are about. And then also to control the environment in large volume of winemaking. Another particularly nasty one is, is, um, is, is a defoaming agent. So when you move wine, like when you move many liquids, when you move wine from tank to tank, as is commonly done in the winemaking process, these large tanks, when you pump the wine over into the other tank, it foams, right? Foams quite vigorously. And so there's there's a defoaming agent that you can just spray on it that will dissipate the foam, and so which is a chemical. And th- these are the kinds of things that are very commonly practiced, um, very commonly practiced in commercial winemaking that don't happen in, in in a natural cellar. So those are the three pillars: just organic or biodynamic, native yeast fermentation, and then uh, free of toxic additives. So that's and also, with in our case, in, in Dry Farm Wines case, our certification also requires that it be dry farmed, which means that there's no use of irrigation. And there's a whole bunch of reasons why irrigation is bad for the planet, bad for the vine, bad for the fruit, and ultimately produces a less healthy wine. Then number, uh, number two, our wines must be sugar-free. So we do lab testing to ensure that they're sugar-free. Uh, number, uh, number three... Um, the um, is alcohol, so we don't allow wines over 12.5 percent. Most of the wines I'm drinking today are between seven and eight percent alcohol, so I drink ultra low alcohol wines. Um, I never rarely drink anything over 11 percent, and so this you know, because alcohol and it surprises people to hear the wine guy who they think is here selling wine which I'm not, what I'm really doing is educating people on how to make decisions around wine, is that wine, it surprises people to hear me say that wine is a very dangerous neurotoxin and must be dealt with with care. It ruins millions of people's lives every year. And some people just shouldn't drink at all, right? But for those of us who choose to drink, um, I want to make informed, good quality decisions. And one of those decisions I want to make 
is just to drink a lower alcohol product because uh, I feel better. And as you know, drinking our wines from the lack of these additives and processes and lower alcohol, you just feel better. Yes. And my mom, um, she hasn't been able to drink red wine since for the last 28 years since she had my little sister. And she is now able to drink red wine without getting headaches when she has dry farm wines. Um, So I think there is, I mean, this is just a huge thing to educate people on. And I'm, I'm just curious because you have these very strict criteria and I know you independent test your, uh, wine, which I love because again, in functional medicine, we look for third party tested supplements. So we want to make sure that a company has gone and, and done third party testing to verify what's in that supplement is actually in the supplement because it's not regulated. Right. And so that's exactly what you guys are doing with wine is you're sending it to an independent lab and making sure what they say is true. Um, right. How do you get connected with these winemakers? Or do you spend a lot of time in Europe and actually go and meet them? Or what does the process look like? Look we like? do. So his, historically, historically, we spend half a year in Europe. We didn't in 2020. We're about to return. Looks like the EU is going to open up for vaccinated travelers um, in July or August. And so we'll be back in Europe. So we did. we weren't in Europe in 2020. We were in Europe when the when the travel ban was announced February the 25th or whatever of 2020, we had to fly, get emergency flights back for our oh, people. Gosh. So historically we, um, historically we spent about half, or we have a team that spends about half the year in Europe. Um, but how we originally, so natural winemakers are quite rare. There's only about 1200 and 1200 wine, natural wine farms in the world. And we're now the largest buyer and reseller of natural wines in the world. So now everybody knows who we are. But in the beginning, in the beginning, um, there were there are about 50 natural wine fairs. There are four in the United States, but most of them are in Europe, about 50 a year. And these are fairs. They're like exhibitions where natural winemakers will gather um, and show their wines to people interested in buying natural wine. So that's originally how we got started. Once I discovered that natural wines were what made me feel better and natural wines were the best way to drink wine from a health perspective and from a performance perspective, because I'm an athlete. So, I mean, that was, you know, the morning after we're also meditators and yogis. And, you know, so it's like, once I discovered natural wines quite by accident and then started quantifying them with lab testing and figuring out, you know, it's natural wine that I didn't, nobody knows anything about. I didn't have any idea what a natural wine, nobody knew what a natural wine was five years ago. And so once I determined it was natural wines, then I learned, then I started to follow the industry and I learned that they have these fairs in Europe. And so first one I went to was in Europe. I was in uh, London. And so we started attending these fairs. And at that time, since we were, you know, very small, uh, nobody knew who we were. They just thought we were weird because we would taste the wine, but then we would take a lab sample with us and we bring it back to the United States and have it tested. And then we also had this lower alcohol requirement, which really struck wine people as very strange. Nobody was thinking about drinking lower alcohol at the time. And so they thought they were very weird that, you know, we had this cap on alcohol and winemakers didn't understand it. They would just say, oh, my wine's balanced. You know, then, 
you know, why do you care about alcohol? And it's like, well, we care about alcohol from a health perspective. And of course, as winemakers, I mean, they don't understand that. They drink all the time. They don't think about wine and alcohol and health. But, uh, but now, today, because we're now the largest of natural wines in the world, um, then, you know, now people know our criteria. They know who we are. They know what we're looking for. And they come to us, right? In many cases, they're making wine targeted at us, meaning that it's lower in alcohol. It's sugar-free. Not all natural wines are sugar-free. Um, so, and the only way to know if a wine is sugar-free is to lab test it. So that's, um, you know, you can't sugar because of the, because of acid in wine, which is part of wine's flavor profile, you can't always taste sugar. Even as a taste professional, we can't taste it. Uh, at least not, we won't allow any sugar less than one gram per liter is our standard, which is under the law and statistically sugar free. But if a wine has two or three or four grams per liter of sugar in it, you can't taste it. Uh, I might feel it because I don't because I don't consume sugar, but 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 I, but you can't usually taste it. And the only way to know if it contains sugar is lab tested. And was this your first business that you started? Being that it's become so no, successful. No, no, no. I've been self-employed since I was seventeen. Okay. So this is probably like my 10th business and, you know, I'm, I'm just like an entrepreneur. So. And you're full time with dry farm wines. Oh yeah. More so. Yeah. Full time. I mean, we're, yeah, we're busy. Cause I'm just very, I'm even interested in your personal life just because of your health journey and that you're on a modified keto now and you were an athlete before. Um, what other things do you do just like take care of your physical and mental health as a business owner? Well, well, I mean, at my comp, well, there's, I guess, two two answers to that. First, foremost, meditation is my, I think, the foundation of a well-lived life. And in fact, my company at Dry Farm Wines, we start every business day with an hour of meditation together every day. And uh, but I begin my morning with a, um, I have rituals. So at my house, I have a Japanese hot tub, I have uh, a sauna, I have a steam room, and I have a cold plunge uh, that's about 38 degrees. And so I, you know, I start my day with 40 minutes of meditation, visualizations, and affirmations. Uh, usually, usually I jump in the hot tub and take a steam, then I meditate. After the steam, I always take a cold shower. I'm a big believer in cold thermogenesis and cold showers. A cold shower doesn't get near the therapeutic result that a cold plunge does, but but still, it's it's a step in the right direction. So I uh, um, I normally get in a hot tub for a few minutes, then I take a steam, and then I take a cold shower, and from there, I have a 40 minute meditation practice individually that I usually start by seven in the morning. I get up around five thirty or six and then, um, and then steam and have a cold shower. And then I meditate for 40 minutes with visualizations and affirmations following that and work on what I call kind of my life plan, uh, which is a 40, a 40 year look ahead from where I am today. And then, uh, from there, I, I work out, I have a gym in my home. So I, rotate days between resistance training and and long cardio 
So, um, and from there, usually from there, then I meditate with my staff, uh, at 10 o'clock in the morning for an hour. We don't gather until 10 because I believe everybody should protect their morning and, and have the tranquility and the peace of their morning is the way that they should start their day as opposed to getting up and rushing to get to work. So we gather now, uh, again, we're meeting in person now, but you know, in 2020, we gather by Zoom for, uh, for our hour of meditation and gratitude. And then we start creating, which is what we call work. We start creating around 11 or 11.15 in the morning. Um, and so, but for mental health, we have a lot, bunch of other rules like, you know, we're super vigilant about the use of email. We don't do any after hours emails. We don't do any emails after on the weekends. We don't do, we don't, we very, very rarely, maybe once a month or once every couple of months, do an email to all. We don't reply to all. We have these email rules that are designed to keep email as civilized as possible. Email is just such an interruption to your peace and to your flow. And then this constant battle of never being able to keep up with it. Right. right, which creates, right. So uh, we just think emails is just a, a pretty terrible thing, but obviously necessary to, to function. But we have a bunch of rules around it that I don't want people to get up in the morning and look at their email box and then have this deluge of emails that a bunch of people sent them the night before while they were at home working. Right. So we just don't, we don't, we don't, we discourage use of email in the first place. And second of all, no emails after six o'clock at night and no emails on the weekends. I don't want to open my email box on Monday morning and have, you know, a hundred emails that 20 people over the weekend sent me. Right. So, and also this, this, you know, reply to all and copy all and all this nonsense, which is just results in just all this extra baggage. But anyway, so, so then usually probably four or five times a week, I, I take a sauna either late afternoon uh, at about 170 degrees for uh, 30 minutes to an hour, followed that by a couple of cold plunges at 38 degrees, which is really cold. Um, and, and the feeling that you get from going from, you know, from 170 degree sauna to a 38 degree cold plunge is phenomenal. I mean, you just, you know, it must be good for you. It just feels so good. It's just incredible. And so for me, that that's kind of my routine week to week. And, uh, and then I try to vary my, yeah, I do a lot of walking, particularly when I'm traveling. I like to run when I'm visiting new cities. I don't run a lot at home. Uh, I've spent most of my cardio time on an elliptical, uh, to minimize the impact from running. But when I'm traveling, like I love to run in cities like Paris or London, it's a great way, you know, in European cities, particularly, they have magnificent parks. And so it's, you know, running is just such a great way to, to see and feel a city. So I might spend several hours running, walking for a while, running for a while, walking again. And, you know, you can cover a lot of, a lot of ground that way in terms of seeing a place you've never been to before. So, but I, I think, you know, meditation for a, for a well-lived adult life, meditation for me is just is just so, so critical. So the other companies that you started before this one, did you have the same type work culture or is this something? No, 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 not at all. No, not at all. Uh, no. I, uh, 
I would, um, no, I wish I had, but this was a, a result. This kind of environment really only works. It's highly contingent on hiring the right people. So because our practices are so unusual and a little bit woo-woo, it's, it's, it's really, really important to hire the right people who fit into this sort of relaxed, what we call self-directed responsibility. So, you know, this kind of, this, this kind of um, ethereal sort of style of living together, this communal way that we live and function with one another around heart-centered love and light, this, the way that we function together only works if you hire people who can be responsible for directing themselves, right? Because otherwise you need to have, you need to have a management environment of fear. And so, you know, if you don't do this, these are the repercussions, right? And so that's the way most manage, most businesses are managed through fear. Some more elevated than others, but basically it's a function of fear. You do this or you, or these are the consequences, right? We don't, we don't have an environment like that, but the only reason that that works and the only reason we can have this kind of headspace and shared consciousness is if we're, if we're surrounding ourselves with people who as a matter of who they are as individuals are, are committed to a self-directed responsibility, because if not, you can't have this sort of shared conscious existence together because it doesn't work. You know, you can't have this love and light and shared consciousness. If I've got to like ride on you all the time to get you to do what you're supposed to be doing. Does that make sense? Yes, for sure. And so is the thought with you guys starting your day with meditation and kind of starting work at 11, 15, 11, 30 or creating, I like that you call it creating. Do you guys work later in the afternoon or no, no, are you we more stop productive? Between five and six. We stop between five and six. Most people I work with don't eat lunch. So, uh, no one goes out for lunch. If they do, it's a light snack, but most of them are intermittent fasting. So most of them don't, don't eat lunch, but, but they just said, when you start your day at peace and you, and, and you have thought, thoughtful contribution throughout the day, you can get a lot more done. And so we stop between five and six in the afternoon. We start sometime between 11 and 1130. And then, you know, and people stop sometime between five and six. Uh, we also have unlimited paid time off, unlimited expenses. I mean, we we just expect people to use good judgment, and so in 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 how they process their world around us and and all of us together, right? So we don't have a lot of rules uh, because we hire people who can make good judgment, and then my job is to teach them how to make better judgments. And so that you don't need rules. Rules are meant for people who can't make good judgment, right? And then so, which is like, use an expense policy as an example. So I told you, we don't have an expense policy. Here's our expense policy. It's unlimited. Now, you can ask yourself three questions about an expense. Is it self-respecting? So does it respect my sense of morality? 
and, and, and submitting this expense, do I feel good about this? Number two, if it were to be examined by your peers, if this expense were to see the light of examination by your peers, would they think it's respectful? And then number three, is it respectful to the business organization? And if you can answer those three questions, then you made a good judgment, right? And that's just kind of how we think about it. And so when we want to, yeah, we just want to surround ourselves with people who think that same way. And that's really the hiring process. So our hiring process takes just around two months and it's quite, it's quite extensive. And in fact, it's at, at times it is, it's, it's suppressed our growth a bit just because we didn't have enough people. Right. But now it's a hundred of us. And so now at our scale, you know, we, we, and people are coming to us now, you know, more people. And so, it's, so we're getting better candidate flow, but in the beginning when you're small, it's, and you have this, you know, we meditate every day and people are like, Oh, this is kind of wacky. <laughs> and, you know, so, and our job postings, which you can see at dryfarmwines.com forward slash join, you can see our job postings are 12 pages long and only one page of the 12 pages is dedicated to the job description. The other 11 pages talk about our view of the world, talk about our meditation practices and about our, our uh, nine codes of peace, performance, and prosperity. And so it talks about the way we see the world, right? And how we function together in this self-directed responsibility environment. And so people read quite extensively about us, you know, before they even make an application. And to make application, it also includes a 15-question questionnaire that every applicant has to submit along with their resume. And that questionnaire typically takes a good candidate around six hours to complete before we even look at their resume. Wow. And what we're trying, what we want there is we want people to select out. So we want the people who don't want to put that work in on the front side just to select themselves out, right? Because most people just want to send you a resume because that doesn't require any effort, right? And we're not looking for people who are trying to avoid effort. We're looking for people who enjoy effort, right? And so, and so they read this, they read this job posting, talks about all this crazy view we have on the world about, you know, how love is our language and that we think that, that love and that work life balance should be a circle, not a scale. So when you think about life work balance, you know, people talk about it, they talk about it as a line, right? Like life is on one side and work is on the other. And it's like a scale. Well, in a scale or in that line, there's always a tension. So one is always giving at the expense of the other. So I'm working more. I have less life. I have more life. I'm working less. Right. So we don't look at it that way. We look at the work life relationship as a circle, not as a line. And so that circle should join in this way. Do something that you love with people that you love. Right. And if you can find that, Right. Then there's no longer this tension between life and work. It's just one circle of the journey, the experience. And that's that's what we work to achieve is that one circular journey and experience together doing something we love with people that we love. 
Does that make sense? For sure. And I've always heard it instead of a work-life balance, it's a work-life integration. And because it really, it's not this straight line. So I love that circle. Well, it sounds like you guys have a fantastic work culture. And I could, as a business owner, talk to you about how you run your business for an hour, but I will spare you and everybody else that. Uh, But is there any kind of myths that you want to share? Kind of at the end, I like to close with two questions. And one is, is there a health myth or a wine myth that you want to bust for our listeners? Something that you hear all the time that people believe that's just not true? Uh, a health myth that's not true. Um, wow. Um, or wine related. Yeah, I, I think, you know, I don't know. I, I just there's so much misinformation. There's so, so, so much mis- misinformation that, you know, I, you know, that you could start about anywhere with wine, um, with wine specifically. Um, it's probably the, the greatest myth is that, is that it's a, is that it's a healthy, is that it's a, uh, is that it's a, a healthy beverage? Um, there's a, you know, I mean, drink wine, it's healthier. Well, that's not, that's very often times not the case because of the reasons that we've talked about. So that's probably the most common wine myth. Yes. Health myth, health myths, there are many, but, um, but you know, the problem with health and, and our view on this is that, you know, we don't really have good quality studies in health because it's very hard to do control group studies on much of anything health related, including nutrition, right? So we just don't really, because there's too many cofactors, too many variables, you know, so all these studies that come out many times are financed by, you know, interested uh, industry uh, groups, you know, uh, developing a study to benefit whatever point of view they might have about what they're trying to prove uh, or disprove. You know, we just we don't really have a lot of quality information as it relates to um, as it relates to health studies. So, um, you know, there are tons of myths there, uh, hundreds, count, countless. I know. Right? Countless. And the whole little by podcast is about little by little, a little becomes a lot. And so I like to end, is there one kind of small change that either you've made or you've heard that really can, can help make our listeners a better version of themselves tomorrow? Any small thing they can do? I've already said uh, a couple of times, uh, I think meditation is the single most important practice an adult can have until we can get control Look, most of us spend the vast majority of our time in uh, in the trauma of thinking, the, the the trauma of thought, and what that means is the injury from thinking, right? And so we spend most of our day uh, not in productive and creative thought. We spend most of our day in destructive thought, and that over a lifetime has a tremendous impact on our mental health and consequently our physical well-being. So this trauma of thought that's generally uh, consumed with regrets of the past or more often anxieties of the future is an uncertainty. And so we spend all of this time consumed with uncertainty, you know, not being able to see what's next, creating anxiety. Well, meditation what meditation does is teaches us over time. It's not instant, 
but it teaches us over time to find silence and to be able to to quiet the mind away from this anxiety. And if we can solve, if we can raise our level of consciousness, and 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 as a leader, and at my company, if we can raise our level of group consciousness, which is our which is our primary focus, but individually. If we can raise our level of consciousness to remove us from this trauma of thinking, then then the 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 um, the abundance created by this space uh, of silence is really a beautiful thing, and 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 is a, in my opinion, and in my observations of others who I meditate with and have achieve group consciousness with there's nothing nothing that can impact your life more critically and more substantially than the quietening of the mind and the quietening of the trauma of thinking thereby just like anything else like a vacuum when you remove this trauma then you open up space to receive abundance you open up space to receive peace you open up space to receive love. You open up space to receive light. When you can quiet this, when you can quiet this, this trauma. So that, to me, that's the single most important thing. Well, you made me ready to start meditating again. I've been, my goal now is just doing even some slow, deep breathing. I, and it's such a, you know, I just make sure I spend a minute every morning. You're spending what, an hour and 40 minutes? And I'm like just making sure I get my minute of deep breathing every morning. Uh, I have a six-month-old at home and a two-year-old business. So I need to, uh, you re-motivated me to get back to some of those longer meditation practices. Nice, nice. Well, thank you so yeah. much, for Todd, for being on the Little Buy podcast. And I will be linking to Dry Farm Wines, and hopefully everybody will get to try it out. It's something that I've become so passionate about, and I love what you're doing. So thank you so much for taking time out of your day to talk with us about why natural wine is important. Nice. Thanks for having me. It was a great time, and much love to everybody, and I wish you all well. Thank you for tuning in. And as always, remember, little by little, a little becomes a lot. Even the smallest changes over time can lead to total mind and body transformation. I'd love for you to stay connected with at Dr. Kristen Oja and at Stat Wellness on Instagram. And if you have any questions, be sure to reach out. I'd love to hear from you.